Welcome back to The Edge, the official podcast of Bass Edge, brought to you by the world's leading underground construction equipment company, Ditchwitch, proud to support the sports you love. I'm Steve Brigman, and I'm here, as I am every week, with the host of Bass Edge Television, Mr. Aaron Martin himself. How are you, sir? I am doing well, Steve, and looking forward as we will have one of the all-time veterans and greats, Shaw Grigsby, who will be joining us to talk about some differences between smallmouth and largemouth, and also where to be targeting each of those this time of year. Well, there you go. Another great interview on The Edge. We'll be right back. Get her like that one, boy. Good job. I don't know of any other sport that offers the challenge with bass fishing, Oh, God. did you see yes, that? Yes, I saw that. That was awesome. <laughs> Watch for the fish to pace the bait. What do you think of that, huh? Yeah. That's full contact fishing right Man. there. You're listening to The Edge, the official audio program of Bass Edge. And Aaron, here in Missouri, where you and I live, uh, we're getting an early jump on the fall. It was downright chilly this morning. Boy, it was, you know, and when I woke up, I couldn't help but think about walking out on the deck this morning that you're probably about to get those leg warmers back out that you always wear this time of year. <laughs> yeah, i tell you what, I this is awful, but uh, yeah, it was 61 degrees this morning, and we left the windows open, and I actually put on a house coat this morning, but that's probably all we need to. I don't want to create too much of an image there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, along with your striped leg warmers, I think those were the, the fame uh, off the movie The Fame, you know, or something like that. But anyway, no, I'm, I'm glad to see this coming, Steve. I, I really am. This is, you know, of course, get closer to the hunting season for a lot of those outdoorsmen that, that mm-hmm. like to partake in both sports. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, man, this is when also the the fishing really starts to come alive again. Well, and I'm looking forward to getting out. And, of course, you and I are going to get out here in a couple of days and looking forward to that. And it's going to be gorgeous. And uh, But I'll be honest, I'm glad I'm going with uh, Mr. Table Rock down there. <laughs> what, what, are you going with Charlie Campbell or what? <laughs> <laughs> ah, you had a great now, man. You had a great summer down there, and we were on a great pattern. And it's just been a very nice summer down there. But, uh well, let's face it, we're heading into that transition. And, and, and I've always tended to struggle in that sort of late August, early September transition period. And I think a lot of guys do, and it has to do with, you know, uh, making yourself make those changes and get off all those fish that you were catching this summer. Boy, that is for sure. You know, and quite honestly, there's a few factors that's going on. Uh, of course, we're approaching kind of the, the turnover situation and, and when, you know, that oxygen begins to kind of scatter. And yet the other thing is, like we've talked about many times and you've brought about here through the seasonal conditions seminar that we do, is that, uh, you know, the, the photo period or that light penetration, the amount of daylight really influences uh, what's going on beneath the surface. And we know you know, the days have been getting shorter since June. That's so true. And, you know, and it's the kind of thing that's it's easy to escape your attention because, uh, you know, even in parts of the country where they haven't experienced the school spell like we have, their days are getting shorter, and that does affect water temperature. You've got cooling water. And I think that photo period, you know, it's a trigger in a lot of nature. You know, photo period actually determines when trees bud and, and trees lose their leaves. But I honestly believe it has a lot to do with triggering things like uh, shad migration. And, of course, uh, as the shad go, uh, 
there go the bass. Absolutely. You know, going up back a few weeks uh, to an interview that we had earlier, going back to those mayfly, that mayfly hatch that we spoke about, you know, it's, it's the cyclical nature of exactly that. And there's so many things that are taking place. And by just looking at, at science and understanding those type of things, man, it can actually make us a lot better fishermen. Who knew that that biology class back in the seventh grade would have led to this? <laughs> I'd hate to take that test right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've you've heard of that show, Smarter Than a Fifth Grader. I don't. I'm not too sure I'd be getting out of the first. Oh, grade. I know. I say, who wants to go on there? And plus, I think that's the smartest bunch of fifth graders I've ever seen. Too, <laughs> Dang right. I, I think this year, and of course, uh, as we grow, we grow in experience. And and I think what I've learned through the years, uh, somewhat, is that when we get into August. And like, like I said earlier, you know, you and I, we've been on a good pattern here, but there comes that time when all of a sudden it ain't happening. And I just really feel that in that fall transition, that late summer transition, that when we struggle, we're most of the time fishing too deep. I, I would agree, you know, and I think that is why when you look at our upcoming trip, uh, of course, there's several rivers that, you know, that feed into Table Rock, but we're going to be heading to, I haven't narrowed it down yet, but I, I've got two selections of rivers that we're going to, and uh, we're going to go shallow. Steve, we're going to start out with some top water. Uh, of course, we always have the drop shot, you know, that deep ability to move back out into that clear water, but we're running up the tributaries. We're going to see what's going on with the shad migration. The other thing is we've had a lot of rain, so there's some current, there's some new water that's coming in from the north, which makes a huge difference, uh, considerations that have to be, I think, looked at. And uh, so we're just going to go check it out and see if we can't get back to some good old traditional power fishing relating to the bank structure, get away from some of that, that drop shotting and some of the deeper stuff that we've been on throughout the course of the summer well that's so true you know and i and uh, of course one of the great times you mentioned topwater fishing of course man this is when that really kicks in you know in a lot of our warmer parts of the country you know i'm an old texas guy and in the hottest part of the summer we really didn't fish a whole lot of topwaters at all but boy when you start getting that first weather change when the water temperature sort of hits that spike and starts heading back down man it's a great time for topwaters uh man that's that's when you want to be on that lake early Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that you've got to look at from a topwater situation is the, the phases. I, I look at it, you know, if they're hitting topwater, we are going to be chasing some shade. Okay. You have some bluff lines, you have, you know, structure, and you can really, you know, throw that topwater uh, for a longer period of time just by chasing the shade. The other thing is if you start getting into some dirtier water, there again, you know, you're going to be able to milk out that, that topwater run just a little bit longer. But I've seen it, you know, Steve, this time of year under the right conditions, meaning, you know, following the shade, you have structure and some dirty water. They're literally going to, they're going to hit topwater, you know, throughout the course of the day. Of course, we don't have vegetation for being able to throw uh, using some of those techniques like we did out in mm -hmm. California and those type of things. But I have seen it where we've been able to catch topwater fish all day long. And, uh, you know, I suspect that uh, once we get off that morning topwater bite, we're going to be out um, looking for that big bite. And I think this time of year, and, and, and I ask you if you agree with this, but uh, I think this time of year, more than any other time of year, it's just a matter of finding the shed. Get on your that gum graph and find those shad and that's step one in catching fish this time of year well sure it is and then again that's why you know the drop shot fish and the deep fish that we've been on some of the tree rows and throwing the jigs through and yo-yoing that with a spoon and that all of those fish are there 
uh, as a result of the presence of bait. And it's no different when we make the run up the river. We're going to be king, obviously, on shad and, and the presence of crayfish. We'll still work um, kind of in and out, meaning we'll, we're going to start in with the top water. Then if the sun gets really high, we'll still move out to some of those river ledges. And also, we're going to check out some flats. Because remember, when you get into the upper parts of a tributary, you're following more of the old river, like you follow, like we did with Boyd Duckett, actually, uh, last year. Mm-hmm. You know, down there, you just get right off those river channels, and they'll move up on those flats. You've got structure. You've got laydowns. They're going to be up there chasing bait, and, man, you can go to work on them. Yeah, you got me going. I'm ready to go to work on them. You know, and the good thing about it is I love to go fishing because you always guarantee we'll slay them. So I'm, I'm looking forward to <laughs> Guarantee I'm going to slay them. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, anyway, we need to uh, slip away for a quick break, and uh, we'll talk to somebody that slays them all the time, Shaw Grigsby. We'll be right back here on The Edge. You've got the truck. You've got the toys. Now it's time to get the hitch that gives you more time to play with both. It's the tow and stow receiver hitch by B&W. You want options? Select the ball size, adjust the height to level the trailer, or stow it out of the way in just seconds. It's 10,000 towing pounds worth of durability, convenience, and the latest technology that has made B&W famous. The Tow and Stow Receiver Hitch by B&W. Call 1-866-BEST-HITCH. Welcome back to The Edge. Brought to you in part by Ditch Witches On, establishing a new standard in trencher power and versatility. We are back on the edge, and with us today is certainly no stranger to the sport of bass fishing. He has spent his last 25 years competing on tour and earning over $1.3 million in the process. All the way from Gainesville, Florida, it's Shaw Grigsby. Shaw, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's good to be here. You know, Shaw, I've got to say, uh, probably your schedule is looking a little bit different than what it did just a few weeks back now that the regular season of BASS is is kind of completed. Yes, it, you know, it's uh, it's different because, you know, we're, we finalized our season, the year's over, so now it's just you know, go film, take care of one more cast, and then go and uh, spend some time with the family. I got a two-year-old grandson, so I get to spend some time with him, and we'll be fishing and hunting and just doing a great time. So it'll be family time and still a good bit of work. And certainly, you know, with the addition of the grandchildren, you know, most are are back in school right now, and I guess for you, that just means you get to spend a little bit more time uh, sharing kind of your passions with those that you love. Absolutely. You know, my kids love the outdoors, and and definitely my grandson, he's only two, so he's not going to be in school. But he definitely uh, you know, caught his first fish the other day and just had a blast. So he's fired up about it. Well, you know, and, and speaking of, I guess, of being fired up, Shaw, you've been involved in this sport on multiple levels uh, for quite some time. I've got to ask, you know, what keeps that fire or that drive going? I just love it. I mean, you, you, the bottom line is, is that, you know, fishing is an incredible sport. I mean, it just really is. You can take it from just like, you know, when I take my grandson fishing just for fun and, and adventure and, and seeing new things, and you can take it from that level all the way to the professional level where you're competing at the top of the game. And that takes, you know, so much more concentration, knowledge, skills, you know, everything that goes along with competing as a professional. So, and you can do it anywhere in between. So it's really a great sport. And the cool thing about sport of fishing is that it doesn't know if you're male, female, black, white, six foot six, or, you know, four foot 11. It doesn't make any difference. Every, anybody can fish. You can fish if you're 
two or three or four years old, and you can fish if you're 92 or three or four years old. It just doesn't make any difference. The fish doesn't know. So it comes down to your knowledge and what you can do to uh, coax them into hitting, and that's just a really, really cool deal. And speaking of introducing and being involved in the sport, how did you get involved in the sport? Because I know you didn't have on your radar screen as far as being an elite professional right off the bat. (laughs) No, I didn't. Uh, You know, I started out just uh, hunting and fishing with my dad and my family, and then it went from there to a friend of mine in in, uh, high school, actually eighth grade, uh, invited me to fish a tournament with him, and uh, I decided that that was really, really awesome to compete, you know, and and have that kind of that little edge of competition involved in fishing, because we just fish for fun, you know, and so all of a sudden it becomes competitive, and that really gets your competitive juices going, and, and then, you know, it went from there to fishing pretty much on the local level, then the regional level, and then the national level. Do you still see the same opportunities less opportunity more opportunities um that you were given during that period of time for young people that's that's getting into the sport absolutely in fact there's a lot more opportunity than what we had back when i was getting into it back in the 70s because you know there's just so many different trails now that are out there and there's so many different ways to go uh so there's more opportunities more tournaments and the knowledge is there there's kids that come out now that are 18 19 20 years old and are just outstanding anglers so definitely you know the money's progressed a bit so on the professional level you know you're looking at being able to actually make a living in the sport and that's all great i mean that's just the progression of the sport what about as far as you know when you break down your life as an angler there has to be some some business knowledge and some business acumen that goes into that to be a success and be able to make a living at this sport can you elaborate on that a little bit yeah absolutely you know i get asked quite a bit in seminars and sports shows and all about what's the best way to become a professional angler and i tell every youngster i say listen make sure that you get a good education and you know go to college and uh, i always use chad brower as the absolute excellent deal and denny Denny took his son, Denny Brower, and and told his son, listen, I'll help you any way I can, but you're going to get your education first. You're going to get your college degree. And so he would come home during the summers from college, and he would guide and fish tournaments, and then he'd go back and go to college. He took courses in marketing, and he took courses in um, business so that he knew how to run his business. He took courses in public speaking, so he's able to talk in front of a crowd. So you do these little courses that help you become a well-rounded businessman and a professional angler. And, of course, you take some courses if you like, and your major can be anything from fisheries biology or it could be a business degree. Uh, But once you get that degree, then you've got that base and always continue fishing. And then when you step out into the professional arena, you're handling that 10 times better than anybody else. And, uh, you know, if you look at Michael Iconelli, who's one of the top in our sport right now, he's got a degree in marketing. So you look at a lot of these top guys, these top anglers, they're not just great anglers, but they're pretty smart. They pretty much got it together and know how to run their own businesses. And that's kind of what you need to do. Well, and and along those same lines, Sean, I'm sure this would be true for most of us that are out here. It's the art of and the being the recipient of being a mentor, I guess, you know, along the way, along your fishing career of how you've had people kind of step in and kind of pass that on. You know, that's pretty important when you look at the longevity of our sport. Absolutely. I think every one of us, uh, you know, that's kind of our biggest desire is to bring people into the sport and to show them how awesome the sport is and then to help people along and get better and better. And that's what we do with, well, even with my TV show and with uh, your TV show, teaching people how to fish 
and teaching them how to become a better angler and getting them into, involved in the sport. That's the future of the sport. Well, and reverting back to something that we touched on a little bit earlier, you know, along the lines of passion, I know that, you know, the, the big bucket mouths of the south and kind of the small mouths of the north hold, maybe it's fair to say, an equal place in your heart. Can you describe any differences, you know, in their behavior uh, when it comes to these oh, two? Yeah. I, you know, we just left New York, had three weeks up there in New York, and uh and catching smallmouth, and they are just, oh, my gosh, what a hoot. Smallmouth, and I've said this so many times, I've said it on stage, I've said it in interviews and all, but a smallmouth is like you take a large mouth and give him about 40 cups of coffee in the morning, <laughs> and that's what a smallmouth is. They are so wired, they're just aggressive, they fight, they don't quit till they're just about, I mean, they're just about dead. I mean, they're just an amazing fish, so they... You know, a largemouth, you hook them, they jump a little, run a little, and then they give up and you reel them in and that's it. A smallmouth just never gives up. I mean, they just fight you tooth and nail. It's an incredible battle, and they're just much more acrobatic. They come in the air, they jump, they trash you, and they're always just you know, darting left and right. I just, I just love them. They're very, very aggressive fish. And to me, there's not too many species in the in the nation that outdo a smallmouth. I mean, just all out, just fun for catching them on top water and catching them all just fun ways. Now, largemouth, the cool thing about largemouth, they get big. So that in itself is excitement. When you get a, you know, big largemouth, you get a 10-pounder, 11-pounder. This year, I caught a 13-6 here in Florida in a tournament, a PAA tournament. So, you know, when you're, when you've got an opportunity to catch a giant like that, that gives you the same type of thrill as a smallmouth in the sense that all of a sudden you're going, oh my gosh, look how big this one is. And, you know, your heart starts beating, your knees get weak and all that kind of stuff. So they both have their place. I love both of them. I love the aspects of them, but, you know, just the clear water, I'm a clear water sight fisherman and being up in those northern lakes and being able to see those fish and watch them attack baits is really the ultimate. Do fluctuations in weather impact one more than the other? Absolutely, especially a Florida strain. You know, I live in Florida and a Florida strain largemouth are very, very susceptible to weather conditions. It seems like smallmouth are much more stable, you know, that you can catch them whether it's cloudy and windy and rainy and and sometimes the worst days are your best days. And yet they're still fine when it's bright and sunshiny and clear and and, you know, you see them swimming along, you go oh, throw a tube over there and there they get it, you know. So, you know, I'd have to say a largemouth seems to be more finicky than a uh, than a smallmouth. What about as far as when you approach the two? Do you have different things tied on? Can you break that down a little bit for us? You know, generally speaking, I'm using about the same baits for smallmouth that I would for largemouth. You know, sometimes it's it's a little more specific, you know, and it's really where you're fishing more so than the bait you're fishing. So if I'm fishing the outside of a grass line and I'm throwing, you know, jerk bait, most of the time I'm going to catch smallmouth doing that and a few northerns. And then I get inside the grass or even shallow you know, fishing inside the grass, you know, you might be able to get a jerk bait through it. Uh, but normally, you know, then I'm looking for more largemouth, you know, the shallower I get and, and that type of thing. So it's more of location than it is the actual fish and baits. So, you know, the bait selection can be identical for largemouth and smallmouth. In fact, I did a couple shows where I'm using, you know, pretty much the same baits. It's pretty cool. I saw on a buzz bait and going down the bank and I catch like a three pound smallie and I catch like four or five largemouth and then I catch another smallie you know, on a buzz bait. And so that's kind of, kind of using the same bait. You're mixing it up. And, and, uh, but like I said, it's, it really seems to be more, if you're around the rocks, the rock shoals, that type of thing, you're going to get the small mouth. And if you're more in the grass and the 
back bays, you get the largemouth. And elaborating on that a little bit as far as what are the types of, of structure? You know, perhaps it's going to depend a little bit on where you're at geographically, but uh, what are the types of structure or areas that you're looking for in particular for this time of year? You know, this time of year, it's a pretty good time of year, especially for top water. And, and like I said, it just depends on where you are in the, in the nation. Right now, I'm in Florida. Uh, Florida, you're going to do a lot of flipping heavy mats. You know, you get back up north where we were in New York, you know, this is their only summertime. Is this July, August? August time is, is really summer, and then, now, then you're breaking into fall. So, you know, those fish will be top water in the morning and then backing out, and they start to group up in the fall, and that's really a neat time because as the water temperatures start to cool down, then those fish get in these really tight groups, and when you hook one, you'll bring 10 or 15 to the boat at a time, and that's really neat. So, you know, depending on your location, if you're up north, you know, this time of year is top water and, and then dropping off to the edges. And if you're in the central uh, United States, it's more, to me, a deep water time of year, uh, you know, where you're drop shotting, you're fishing jigs deep, you're dragging Carolina rigs. And then when you get to the south and it's a flipping and pitching and getting in the heavy stuff and trying to dig one of those big guys that are hiding from all the sun and the heat, hiding underneath all the cover and the vegetation. So... That's kind of the basics of right now, this time of year. What about as far as, you know, up north, uh, obviously there's a lot of natural lakes, whereas you, you kind of work your way down and, and you get more into the man-made reservoirs. Do you notice a difference on, on how you have to approach natural lakes versus man-made reservoirs? Absolutely. You know, man-made reservoirs will have all kinds of neat structure. They'll have river channels, creek channels. They'll have sunken islands and just dumps and logs and trash and stuff like that, where a natural lake tends to have a lot less of that type of stuff. So you're looking for real subtle things in natural lakes where you know, reservoirs, you, you can find some real major structures that hold these fish. And, of course, vegetation. If you have a lake and it has vegetation in it, meaning grass that grows underwater, grass that maybe grows above water, so, you know, submerged vegetation, emergent vegetation, those fish love that. I mean, until it's just flat, black, dead, done, dying, they love vegetation. So generally speaking, if I go to a new body of water and I'm like, you know, where can I find fish, if I have vegetation you know, milfoil, hydrilla, any number of vegetation, I'll spend a lot of time fishing around that. That's great advice. And speaking about breaking things down, you know, there are those of us who have the ability to be able to target uh, lakes, much like what you just spoke of up there in New York, to where, you know, you have both largemouth and smallmouth present. And even throw, let's even throw spotted bass into that equation. What tips can you give us on determining which is the best species to pursue uh, when arriving at a body of water? That is a great question. And I'll just look back at Oneida Lake. You know, when we first went there and nobody had a clue about Oneida and what it was going to produce, we had some guys that would fish largemouth. We had guys that would fish smallmouth. And lo and behold, it gets one on largemouth. And so they felt they could compete. Well, it's turned out that every single year, four straight years, largemouth has won the tournament. But smallmouth keep getting closer to winning it. The point being is that you don't really know. You know, we go to Buffalo at Lake Erie, and you pretty much know that you better be targeting smallmouth. You go to Table Rock, and you know where you're at there, and you could do great on largemouth. You could do great on spotted bass. I don't know that I've ever heard of a tournament having big stringers of smallmouth there, you know, that, that really, you know, made a big dent. Now, it's, you can always supplement one in there, but it seems like the largemouth is going to be 
you know, the little bit bigger fish, but boy, you can be consistent with those good spots. And so sometimes it's which one's more prevalent and which one do you think you can get a big one? So you might go out there and say, okay, let's say I'm at Table Rock and I go out there and I'm going to catch me a limit of spots because I can do that quicker and they may not be quite as big. And then I'm going to run up a river and flip a jig or throw a crankbait or do whatever to try to catch one good kicker largemouth. You might have to do that in a tournament day to maximize your chances at winning. And how do you keep yourself mentally focused? You know, because I I think we all agree that one of the important factors when it comes to having success on the water is about the decision that that you make. But how do you keep yourself mentally focused on a single species without constantly second-guessing yourself? Well, should I be doing this? I think you do. I mean, uh, (laughs) very honestly, I think you do. You, You know, if you're not catching them, then you're probably second-guessing yourself. Oh, I should be fishing for this, and I should be doing this. And, you know, you're always thinking, I should be fishing largemouth, but no, it's so much fun catching these smallmouth. Or I, or I should be fishing the smallmouth, but, but man, these largemouth are big, and I'm just going to get a few bites, but they're going to be bigger. So I think you're always in that mode of second-guessing and questioning your strategies until weigh-in comes around, you know, and you just catch the biggest stringer you can. Now, one thing we do in, in tournaments is we do study those lakes and the tendencies of the lakes that we go to. So you kind of know the weights that are caught in that lake, you know, generally speaking, so you kind of have an idea of your target weight to do good. And then if you get above that target weight, then you're doing very well. And that's when, you know, you're looking at it, you say, well, I've got a limit of fish right now, and they may be spots or smallmouth, and yet it's 14 pounds, and I really need to get to 16. So now you know that you've got to up it by a couple pounds, and that means you've got to catch a largemouth. So then you spend the rest of your day just hammering for a big one. But being focused is something that probably, you know, to take that to a different level is probably one of the most important things of fishing, and it's being focused on every cast and making those right decisions. And there was a time when I couldn't do that. And uh, we got this guy, Ken Hoover, that came out on tour, and he's a a nutritionalist guy. You know, he just does all this nutrition expert. And he he, uh, gets us these protein bars, and it turns out we burn like, you know, almost 3,000 calories a day out there fishing. And and usually we're very underfunded on our food, so we're very below what we should intake. And so you hit these times when you're not thinking right. And so he started giving us these protein bars and these, you know, real high-powered stuff that just really keeps you focused. And I've been totally impressed. I've been doing it for three years or, or so now, and it's been amazing that I don't have those down times. I don't have those times when I'm sitting in the boat going, what do I need to do? I'll sit in the boat and go, I need to do this. So it's like I've already gone past the what stage to the I need to do this. In other words, I'm recalling things faster. I'm making better decisions, quicker decisions. And I think that shows in my you know, angle of the year performance and my classic performances. And, and I think that has a lot to do with nutrition. And that's just going way off the wall there because we were talking fishing, but that's a big part of fishing. Well, absolutely it is because if we're not, you know, funded uh, nutritionally, we certainly cannot be funded, you know, mentally when it comes back to something that we said earlier as far as making those all important decisions. Before we get out of here in our last 30 seconds or so, what's the top few, say, five baits that you're going to have tied on this time of year? Wow. I got to have a top water bait. I mean, just. It, and it doesn't matter whether it's a spitting king or a or a buzz bait. I just got to have a top water bait because I love the strikes and the intensity of the strikes first thing in the morning, and then probably some type of creature bait. 
like a hog or something like that, just to pitch around and do slow things. Wow, you're really getting me now because, <laughs> you know, a one-two punch like that, you can pretty much cover a lot of stuff. Spinner baits are great, but then I've got to have a drop shot if I'm anywhere around clear water. Well, all good stuff. Shaw, unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much for being part of The Edge as you are always such an ambassador, and uh, we look forward to doing it again. Absolutely, Aaron. Thank you very much. Power. Productivity. Speed. It's the best trencher ever made, not to mention the best plow. Dumper. Tiller, backhoe, stump grinder, and tool carrier ever made. The Zahn, the revolution, is here. Now you can harness the full power of your boat electronics and catch more fish. Introducing Electronics 101. Whether a beginner or more advanced, leading electronics instructor Mike Webb shows you how to get the most out of any sonar unit. Common problems and frequently asked questions are covered in detail. Electronics 101 also includes bonus deep fishing tips from industry pros. Master any brand graph. Order your DVD by calling 888-390-8780 or online at BassEdge.com. Hey, Edge listeners, this is Scott Suggs. I'm Dave Wolak. This is Chad Morgan-Taylor. Hi, I'm Chris Ball. This is Dion Hibden, and you're listening to The Edge. Learn for a guy who lives down there in uh, Gainesville, Florida, gator country, oh, Shaw sure seems to like catching those smallmouths. Boy, he does. And, uh, you know, that is one of the things that he is adamant about. And I, I thought his information as far as not only, you know, with the, the weather, of course, you know, he's down there in uh, around the Florida strains, uh, much like you grew up around. Mm-hmm. But uh, his comment to how the weather impacts them and then, also, just uh, what to be doing and how to target those this time of year was, was pretty right on the money. Well, it is. And, of course, Shaw's a guy that's done it all in this business. And uh, it's great to hear from a guy who's, uh, you know, seen this business from the, the boat in, the, uh, in front of the microphone. And he's had a lot of success in the business, catching smallmouth and largemouth. You know, and I think that's, that just says a lot about success is your ability to uh, go into different places and not only catch different species, but fish different lakes. I mean, down in Florida, he I'm sure he fishes an awful lot of vegetation. Uh, you and I are going fishing this weekend, and we won't see one weed. And uh, when you look at a guy like that, the ability to be versatile and adjust, uh, that's just key to being a success. It absolutely is, and I thought that I really chuckled at his comment uh, when I when I was asking him, you know, how do you – keep your mental focus when you commit or decide to pursue a species you know steve you and i and he brought up table rock you know obviously during the interview but we're fortunate to where we live around in close proximity uh, to a lake that has you know multiple species the smallmouth spotted bass and largemouth and you know we were talking um, concerning you know which which fish do you target and of course he looks at things like you know those that are most prevalent what's mm-hmm. going on with the bait fish but um I, I really got a laugh out of when he said you know you never quit second guessing yourself if you're fishing for largemouth you're you're thinking to yourself that the smallmouth or the spots are biting better 
Well, that's so true. And of course, in his case, he's a competitor. So he's trying to put the most pounds in the boat. And, and that's another part of that decision. I know you and I are uh, sort of partial to them little smallmouth rascals. They're hard fighting fish and we have a lot of fun catching them. And of course, you get multiple opportunities to catch all of these fish. I guess, what do you fish, like four or five days a week? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, you know, it's kind of like, uh, I, I feel like the guy that opened up a sporting goods store because he loves to hunt, you know, and your busiest time of year is right when things need to be you need to be out in the woods. But no, I am I cannot complain whatsoever. I am fortunate. I do get uh, my fair share of fishing time, and and I most enjoy you know traveling all over and getting to see the different things because mm-hmm. one thing is, as you know we don't have that Shaw talked a lot about is the presence of vegetation and and uh, man that that is just a bass haven. It absolutely is. And, uh, you know, I was talking to Kevin Van Dam one day about Table Rock, and he told me, he said, it's my favorite lake in the country that doesn't have vegetation. And uh, I think that says a lot. I mean, that says a lot about vegetation and Table Rock. It does, it does. And, you know, if there is such a bad thing about, uh, I guess, grass or vegetation, is that this time of year, you know, they're buried up into that grass, and sometimes you got to go in there after them and punch through that with a big heavy weight. And, man, that can be certainly be difficult in trying to get those out of there, which kind uh, Kind of leads us, I guess, into this week's question, Steve. Well, it sure does, and we got a good question for you this week, Aaron. It's from Chris, and Chris says, So I found the fish, got them to bite, and lost every one I hooked. I was never so frustrated in my life. So what is the proper way to fight a fish? It's been two months since I brought a fish to the shore and just recently threw my rod and reel in the lake and swore off fishing. Maybe you could give me some motivation to try again. I think God is playing a cruel game on me. Please help. You want me to go first, or you want to start with that one, Steve? Oh, you go first. I want to hear this. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I've, I've actually I've got a few things uh, to pass on to Chris that'll hopefully help. You know, first off, um, man, I've. All I can say is been there, done that numerous times. I do want to throw off kudos, though, that you found the fish. And quite honestly, that, in my opinion, and I think a lot of anglers will agree, in my opinion, that is the hardest thing to do is to find the fish and then to turn around and get them to bite. You know, the other thing is I think frustration is is natural. I mean, it is just part of the game. We're dealing with wild animals, changing variables. You cannot give up, you know, and that is what is going to keep us coming back. It's just that determination, that motivation to get out there and uh, to stay after it. So the the next advice that we're going to be talking about, you can't use unless you stick with it. So, Chris, please hang in there and uh, go back out and hit it hard. But I would look at such things as, you know, mechanics-wise, if, if I'm throwing a, a crankbait or or something to where that they're they're going to try and jump that's prone to jumping or like a big football jig where you've got that big heavy weight out on the end of it to where they can use that leverage or that head shake and get above the water and to try and shake that loose. I am oftentimes going to keep my rod tip down, but you have to keep tension. You cannot allow any slack whatsoever in the line. And then oftentimes I'll even kneel down because remember, if you're pulling a fish in, that resistance, it's going to react or respond to the point of resistance. So if you have a real high angle and you've got that rod tip way up in the air, they're going to want to come up out of the water. Whereas if you're just pulling that along the top, it's going to try and keep them in. Uh, Obviously, you know, things like sharp hooks, uh, those type of things, but that's going to be a starting place for me. What's your thoughts, Steve? Well, sure. That's that's all great advice, Aaron, and, and you're exactly right. 
And uh, I just want to add and tell Chris, uh, I can identify with you. Uh, been through those periods where things just seem to go wrong. And uh, the constant there is it does always seem to turn around. And don't worry about throwing your rod and reel in the water. Aaron does that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, now, who was the last one that actually uh, threw the rod and reel in the water there? Well, I, it was in the water, but that's because I dropped it because I set the hook on a big old smallmouth. No, but, it's uh, because you had all that baby oil on your hands that you were rubbing on your, your tan accelerator. Okay, okay. That's letting this get away from So we have digressed. But, uh, Chris, we appreciate that question and uh, keep in touch with us. But uh, we need to uh, take a quick break here, Aaron, and uh, pay a few bills, and we'll be right back here on The Edge. You know the importance of protecting your investments, so why use anything other than the toughest keel protector for your boat? Grinding sand, abrasive rocks, and concrete ramps are no match for our patented technology. Keel Guard keel protectors are made tough and made to stick. Their do-it-yourself installation takes less than an hour, providing the most dependable, most trusted keel protection for your boat, guaranteed for life. So give your boat the performance edge. Put on the protection the pros pick. Keel Guard keel protectors. Larry, we just never seem to have enough time to settle all these issues, but we'll be back next week with another great guest. Yeah, and we will have Randy Blockett up next week. Really looking forward to this, Steve. It's going to be a little bit off the beaten path from what we normally do. Make sure everybody gets back here for that. And before we do get out of here, though, Steve, uh, I think we have something to give away this week. We do, and this week's winner is Tracy from Hickory, North Carolina. Tracy receives an Arden Reel Cleaning Kit, and that can sure come in handy on all your reels. Well, congratulations out to Tracy, and it's always good to hear from our friends there in North Carolina. That is it for today, but be sure to look for us on Bass Edge Television, seen each and every day on the World Fishing Network and also Wild TV in Canada. Don't forget to log on to BassEdge.com for the latest tips from the pros and a chance to win great prizes. And for all of you Twitter and Facebook users out there, keep us up to date and uh, let us know what's going on in your world by adding us as a friend. Until next time, I am Aaron Martin. And for Steve Brigman and the rest of the Bass Edge crew, we look forward to seeing you next week right here on the edge. This week's edition of Bass Edges The Edge has been brought to you by B&W Trailer Hitches, Ditch Witch, Mega Wear Keel Guard, O'Reilly Auto Parts, and Legend Boats. For more information on Bass Edge, including our television show, training materials, e-newsletter, and podcast, please visit www.bassedge.com. Be sure to join us next week on The Edge.